1: In 2022, I would love for you to join my Patreon group. I offer at least two bonus episodes a month and a monthly advanced read and pre-publication author chat. For those on Facebook, I host a special Patreon Facebook group where we all chat books. Thanks so much to those who already participate, and I hope you will consider joining us. Today, I am chatting with Adriana Trigiani about The Good Left Undone. Adriana is the New York Times bestselling author of 20 books in fiction and nonfiction which had been published in 38 languages around the world. She is an award-winning playwright, television writer and producer, and filmmaker. She wrote and directed the film version of her debut novel, Big Stone Gap, and adapted her novel, Very Valentine, for television. She grew up in the Appalachian Mountains of Virginia, where she co-founded The Origin Project, an in-school year-round writing program that serves more than 2,500 students' grades 1st through 12th. Adriana is proud to serve on the New York State Council on the Arts. She lives in Greenwich Village with her family.
0: This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Welcome,
1: Adriana. How are you today?
2: Doing just great.
1: I am so glad you're here, and I cannot wait to talk all about The Good Left Undone. So why don't we get started with you just giving me a quick synopsis for those that won't have read it yet.
2: Well, you know, Cindy, the first thing I'm going to tell you is that you're telling me that it's for fans of Elena Ferrante because it's a big, sprawling family saga, okay, about a contemporary family in Italy. But mine is different in that it goes back in time. But it's Italy, France, Scotland, the Cabrelli family, who for generations were gem cutters for the Vatican. And it is told through the eyes of and the storytelling of the matriarch of the family, who frankly feels she has done a terrible job of telling the family story. And so while time's running out for her, she, she's going to set the record straight. So there's a beautiful, it's, it's in the moment, it's in the present, but it goes back in time to her parents' love affair and what happened during the war and after.
1: How was that writing in the present and then also going back in time and writing those components?
2: Well, for me... The, the past involves research, and then I go to the places where things happen. Or in the case of this novel, I discovered the story in the place that it happened in Scotland when I was there to direct a movie. But story finds you in weird ways, or interesting ways, or magical ways to me. But the in, the interplay of the present and the past to me is not that different to write, because in the moment, even if I'm writing in the past, I'm writing in the moment of that character's life. So it doesn't feel all moldy and dusty like you found an old pair of shoes in the attic that nobody can wear. It feels alive and real. And that was very important in this novel where a lot happens.
1: I like that. I hadn't thought about it that way before, that you are really writing in the present for whatever time period you're writing.
2: Absolutely.
1: I know you had a great inspiration story for this one. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that, how you first learned about Italians in Scotland and the wedding that you attended and all of that. I would love to hear more.
2: Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I I went to Scotland to direct a movie, and there's a wedding in the movie, and I, I didn't really think too much of that till I went. I was in Glasgow, and when you're fortunate enough to tour through as an author, you kind of see one part of the world. But when you go through on your foot, you're on foot, and you're with the people, you have a different experience. So. I made a list of places in Glasgow that I could walk to and experience, and one of them was St. Andrew's Cathedral, and St. Andrew's Cathedral was originally Catholic, then it flipped to Protestant for three hundred and fifty years, and then it flipped back to Catholic. I just wanted to see the physical space of the of the church, maybe light a candle and you know throw myself in front of a bus. okay anyway, so I get in there and there's a wedding happening, and the wedding. It's beautiful, small, beautifully curated wedding, I should say. And as I'm standing in the back of this church, I decide to just stay because I hear music. It turns out that the bride had chosen every song my mother chose for her funeral mass.
1: Oh, wow. And my mother
2: passed away like six months earlier. And I'm like, this is a sign from God. And I'm just stood there crying. The bagpiper kind of moved off because, you know, Scottish men don't like crying. When a gentleman says from behind me, who are you? And I turned around and it was the priest. And I said, oh, father, I'm just a tourist. Don't worry about me. And he said, what's your name? And I told him, he said, you're Italian. And I said, yes, I'm Italian American. He said, then you need to see the garden. And so Cindy, I went through the garden gate and that became the heart and soul of this novel.
1: I just love that as an inspiration story. I thought it was beautiful. And how fun to attend this wedding and then feel like you had that connection to your mother. I hate to tell you everything's about our mothers. That's the truth. (laughs) Well, tell me about the jewel aspect of the story. I know you got to take a jewel-making class at Christie's, and I'm always so interested in gems, and I'd love to hear a lot more about your class.
2: Well, the class at Christie's was a mistake. A friend of mine signed up for it. She lives in Los Angeles. Her name's Kristen Dornan and And she said, hey, I can't get there for the class. Do you want to take it? And at the time, she didn't know I was writing a novel about gem cutters for the Vatican. And I said, sure, I'll take the class. And it was called Muggles and Maharaji's Magnificence. So that's where the whole element of India and the rubies came from, is I learned how these gems are mined where they find them, how they figure out which gems come from which area. And then that sent me in that direction. Now, a class is really great because you do learn. You The historians come in and tell you about technique. You see things made. You touch things. That's all really great. But I think just as important was my visit to the Vatican, where by accident, the man that was taking us through, which was arranged by my friend Gina, couldn't make it. So his friend kind of stepped in and his friend worked as a curator in the Vatican museum with the Vatican jewels.
1: How cool is that?
2: It's so cool. And there's a whole long story around that, which when I talk to you again, I'll tell you, but basically I learned this important thing. Like when, when, when you get your engagement ring, you know, you think it's new, but not only is it millions of years old from the earth, That stone itself was part of something else. So what I'm saying is, is back in the day, the Maharajas would have these ornate necklaces. Well, Cartier or even like a middleman jewelry company would come in, buy the stones, pluck them from the settings and recut them. So you could get like a hundred rings out of one uh, one diamond from a necklace.
1: It's hard to fathom a diamond that's that large that you could get a hundred rings out of it.
2: Well, I have pictures and it was stunning to me. Here's what's even more hilarious or hard to believe is that the women didn't wear the jewelry in India in the ages of the Rajas and the Maharajis. The men wore the jewelry.
1: That does seem so funny.
2: It was like dripping. You know, I used to have a joke. My husband gave me a dinky necklace once. He said, well, how big do you want the thing to be? I said, rule of thumb for me, the stone should be the size of a deck of cards. (laughs) Okay? Okay. So my husband just rolled his eyes and leave the room. But these jewels were huge. They weren't just a net. Like, I'm not saying this right. I'll, I'll send you a picture later. But the Maharashi, it would be layers deep, almost like it was all separated. But dangling from these this gold were these enormous. Some, there were there were diamonds the size of a fist.
1: I've seen pictures, and it's always hard to imagine. And also, how heavy they would be. Oh my gosh, of course.
2: Well, that's why the Rajahs would wear it. They'd had nothing else to do but be king. So what do they care? Yeah, exactly. But the other part of this that's really interesting, think how much money we've saved the men in our lives.
1: That's true,
2: we have. Had I know there was a diamond the size of a fist. I think I would have said, get back down in the earth and bring it out. Keep mining,
1: <laughs> go deeper. But you couldn't wear that on your finger. That would be a little difficult. You could be like, we're getting engaged, but I'm gonna wear it around my neck.
2: Exactly, or we'll drive it somewhere. That's how big they were.
1: Well, and I also like that you mentioned that jewelry or jewel making becomes a family enterprise. And it does seem like they're like Cartier and Tiffany and families that have made that their business that has then survived the ages.
2: You're so right. Most crafts, craftsmen, and and all craftsmanship or anything artisans develop over time is usually a generational effort in a family. At the turn of the last century, the biggest employer of Italians was the Vatican. At the end of World War II, everything changed. My family was a poor, struggling family. They they were great artisans, but they worked on commission. They didn't make any money. And after World War II, they went into business for themselves, and then they prospered. And Cindy, a direct line can be drawn from prosperity and wealth, to the, the fall of the family, because prosperity and wealth kill intimacy, kill values. When money becomes the God, there isn't a lot of room for love.
1: Well, everybody starts getting greedy and arguing over who should have what.
2: That's right. And, and, and on a deeper level, there's no time when you're making a lot of money to sit around the table and tell the family story. It's another aspect of it. Well, what are you?
1: Exactly. You're just a name
2: on a mailbox. With no
1: history. Well, I did not realize there had been a number of Italians in Scotland because of the war and that they had then been sent out of Scotland because of the war. That was all very Neither did I.
2: <laughs> neither did I. And by the way, neither did my British publishers. Let's get real. 50% of the stories aren't, aren't ever recorded because they're about women. Well, that's true, too. So already history has a gaping hole in the tarp. The important part, right? (laughs) That's right. The gaping hole. And then from there, when great leaders make dumb decisions, they try to bury it with propaganda. We just live through it. (laughs) I mean, uh, we don't have to get specific, but, you know, they tell you. uh, But my point is, is during World War II, Winston Churchill panicked. All he could think was Hitler's at the football field and I can't let him onto this island. And when Mussolini declared war, aligned himself with Hitler, well, imagine what he thought. You had all these Italian, they're called Britallians. And I did not know that there were these immigrant communities, all these places. But now I know why there's a thriving pizza business in in Australia. They're descendants of these, these men that were banished during World War II because Winston Churchill got afraid. He got scared.
1: Well, and the same thing happened here with certain groups of people, and I think people do get afraid, and then they act irrationally versus thinking through their choices.
2: Well, the Japanese were interred here, you're yep. correct, and so were the Italians. They, we inter people. The Japanese, yep. you no, know, absolutely.
1: Well, what surprised you the most when you were writing this book?
2: Wow, what a great question. I guess the shocker was how much Winston Churchill loved the Italians, and it didn't matter. So tell me a little bit about that. Well, Mussolini declared war on his country. So every Italian now was bad, even if they if they gave up their sons in World War One, or they fought in World War One and they didn't have a hand anymore or a leg or it didn't matter. The immigrant is always waiting for the roundup. You're never at home in the country that you adopt until, of course, you get fat and happy generations later and forget that you were ever immigrants. And then you don't want new immigrants to come in because you have a bias against them. I mean the the, the 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 insanity of that I can't even speak to. The lack of gratitude. But when people get prosperous, they get they lose themselves. That's my feeling.
1: I think that's right. And a lot of people want to align themselves with the majority, regardless of who the majority is, which again is sort of a strange thing for me. I would rather just stick with my own beliefs. That's right. How about the title? I really I know from reading the beginning of the book where the title comes from, but can you talk a little bit about it?
2: St. Bernard of Clairvaux was a mystic and a teacher. He was, the, they call him the professor, the doctor, the of the Catholic Church. And he was kind of a thin, sickly Frenchman. Came a priest, born in wealth, and over the course of his life, he developed these warnings. If you want eternal life, he, these warnings, divinely inspired. And there was a pope called Pope John Twenty-Third, who was the first peasant pope. And his family, the Roncallis, happened to be friends with my grandmother, Lucia Spada Bonicelli's family in Schilpario, Italy. The Roncallis lived at the bottom of the mountain, and the Spadas lived at the top of the mountain. And my great-grandfather ran a horse cart up and down. And I imagine he would stop there and have lunch or spend the night or refresh his horse or do whatever he had to do. Well. Whenever we go to Italy, and I go to Italy every year, I try to stop in il Monte because I feel it's sacred, because that's where he was born and raised. And I go to his church, and in his church was a St. Bernard of Clairvaux's Warnings in Italian. And then I came home, and I had his book, Journal of a Soul, where he recreates them in the back. And I felt more strongly about his translation than mine or whoever translated his and when i studied them because it's sort of like uh, my 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 meditation guide my prayer book his journal i would always read these aloud to myself and so in the beginning of the book is the past and saint bernard says if you want to gain eternal life heed these warnings in the past contemplate these three things The evil done, the good left undone, and the time wasted. And honestly, during COVID, that was like the chimes at midnight for me. The time wasted, the good left undone, and the evil done.
1: I have to say, I just loved that. And I want to type it up and put it various places in my house to just remind myself. I really, really liked that. It resonated with me.
2: I love that you loved it. And you know what? I'm going to I'm gonna figure out a way to do that for you so you don't have to take the time to do it because I think
1: it's really, really important.
2: And I think any faith or even an agnostic could appreciate it or an atheist.
1: Really just a reminder of how we should spend our time, what should be in the forefront of our thoughts, and not wasting time.
2: And I think that this pandemic helped us do that. I agree. Yeah.
1: Well, what about Adriana Inc.? I have watched them. I've seen them come through on Facebook and I've watched them and I really enjoy them. How did you come up with the name? How did you decide to do it? Do you just have a ball?
2: Well, you know, every business changes over time. And in publishing, you know, they said to us, you need to be involved in social media, which to me is an anathema. But I said, all right, let me look at it. And I, I just like with the Origin Project, which is, uh, which is our in-school writing program in Appalachia, it's got to be something I know how to do. And I love to read. So I just started asking authors to come and talk about their books. But I said, here's the deal. I will read your book and then we'll talk about it. And then it started to get really interesting because I could be at, you know, at the dentist and somebody would be reading something and I'd take a picture of the jacket of their book and I'd come home and get it and read it and have the author on.
1: You've had a wide range of people. Has it just been so interesting to read their books and then to engage with them? Absolutely. I mean, I
2: love the diversity of the group and and, and not and, and yes, diversity in culture and color and religion, all that. Yes, of course. But I mean diversity of thought. And I don't know if you feel this way, but I feel like the cultural conversation is so bad right now. Not so bad. You know what? I'm gonna change that because it was worse. Now it's better because of your show, a lot of shows that have been on for where people are having access to them that maybe. Prior to the pandemic, they couldn't get on a podcast. They didn't know how, but then they learned how to enjoy and savor all these wonderful discussions. As an author, I would go places, and they they didn't hadn't read it, and it was frustrating. And I thought, well, that's how I can help. And and you know, sadly, there there was like Andre Leon Talley. I intended he was booked to do more conversations, and he died. So those things happen to you too when you're doing it. And I'm sure those have happened. That's happened to you too. But I just want to have an intelligent conversation, a lot of fun, of course, about the books, you know.
1: Well, and that's interesting that you say that because occasionally I will have an author ask me, have you read the book? And I'm always like, of course I've read the book. How could I talk with you about your book if I haven't read it? But apparently that's a thing. I mean, people don't read the books before they have these conversations. I feel like I would be at a loss sometimes or lost in parts of the conversation if I hadn't read the book.
2: Me too. I just feel like I wouldn't know what, it, what was going on.
1: It would have to be a very generalized conversation. That's right. What have you learned as an author being on the other side of it? That part must be fascinating. So instead of being the interviewee, you're being the interviewer.
2: I've learned how fragile the creative person is. I always had this belief that it took so much guts to create something that, regardless of what it was, shoes, food, say your chef, that with that comes an inner strength or the buildup of a sense of confidence. And I've learned that there's a fragility there. And the other thing I've learned is there are no two alike. Like even everybody that writes thrillers, you can't lump them in a category. You just can't. People that write about World War II historical figures, well, you can't lump them in a category. They're all different. So those have been my biggest life lessons. What are yours talking to authors?
1: Well, one thing that I have found is that I've, with this podcast, I've read all sorts of books that I don't think I would have even encountered before, but they've been pitched to me and I'm like, oh, that sounds really good. So I've just learned a lot generally. And then I've learned the same thing you just said, that there is no one process, that that everybody does it differently. Even if they're a plotter, they plot differently than the next plotter. Even if they're a pantser, they pants differently than the next pantser. You know, that everybody really approaches things differently and research. Some people research the whole thing ahead of time. Some people don't research till they start writing. It's just been fascinating to see how it all unfolds. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. And I've just, like I said, read a lot of books that I wouldn't have known about, which is wonderful, and met so many great people. I think that's probably my very favorite part of it.
2: It's really important to just get out of your comfort zone once in a while and read something that you might not have thought about.
1: Absolutely. And just talk to people that I haven't talked to before. And that's been wonderful. You know, like if you had told me two years ago I'd be speaking to you, I'd be like, no way. I feel very honored that I'm getting to. So it's those kinds of things too.
2: That's really, it's beautiful. And I thank you for that because I feel the same way. You know, I love talking to, because I love to direct. I love talking to actors. I always love actors and find them fascinating. So that's always fun. But then I also love the priest or the rabbi or the, or the nurse, you know, or the uh, or, or the novelist who writes spin's Fiction. Uh, those are all important.
1: The other thing that I think is really interesting is the way that stories are discovered, like your story. This one you decide to tell because you happen to pop into this church while you're in Scotland filming another movie, and all of a sudden you're like, this would make a great story. I love hearing those types of stories and how books come about.
2: Me too. Me too. Because just like there are no two authors who write no, no story alike, no stories are alike in the way that they're hatched in the in, in the subconscious. They're just all different.
1: I think that's exactly right. Well, speaking of other stories, what have you read that you really loved recently?
2: Well, I, I I stayed up late last night because I did a I did an Instagram live with all the the April authors of the Book of the Month Club, which is a wonderful program, and I'm incredibly grateful to have been picked with these great authors, but. Had me up last night was a book called Bittersweet by Susan Kane, which is a nonfiction book about grief and longing and failure and sorrow and how you not just come out of them, but walk with them and they build you up and make you better. It's a pretty profound book. And what made me excited about it, and the reason I mention it is because I was a huge fan of another book she wrote, but I didn't remember her name till I picked this one up. She wrote a book called Quiet. And for anybody that has a, a child that's shy, that was a book that made the rounds. Teachers gave it to me. So, you know, how to get your child to speak up in class and so on. So, yeah, I really, I love that, that, that Susan, she writes about the emotional experience of the tough stuff, of
1: loss and of displacement and being different. And grief is so hard because it will hit you at the weirdest times.
2: Oh, yeah. yeah.
1: When you least expect it and sometimes when you're in a terrible place for it to suddenly come on.
2: It's so true. It's so true. It's so hard.
1: Anything else you've loved?
2: Okay. I can give you a bunch here. Let's go. Chris Bojali has one coming out called The Lioness that I just finished. Loved it. The Magnificent Lives of Marjorie Merriweather Post by Allison Taki's is terrific. Karen Duffy has a memoir coming out called Wise Up. That's the Duff from MTV. Kate Quinn's Diamond Eye. Cherish Farah. You've been busy. <laughs> I've been busy. You know you know a book that I think everybody needs to read is Black Bottom Saints by Alice Randall. I love that book. I think it was masterful. And I, I talk about it every chance I get because people don't know about it.
1: It's a beautiful story with a beautiful cover. I loved it. And I learned so much. I was Googling like crazy when I was reading that book.
2: Yeah, it's a great one. It's a great one. It is.
1: Well, Adriana, thank you so much for joining me today on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. I love speaking about the good left undone and I love chatting with you.
2: Thank you for your beautiful interview and I love your podcast, Cindy. Thank you. All righty, take care. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Calafato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style, and together,
1: we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling, and all in approximately seven minutes.